Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a special Wednesday edition of the John Solomon Reports podcast. That's right, the one from Just the News. Uh, Today, we're going to do something a little different because we have a rare opportunity to talk to the man who wrote the national security strategy for President Trump at the National Security Council. And we're going to spend the whole half hour talking to no one other than retired Air Force Brigadier General Robert Spaulding. This man has a remarkable career. He's a doctor in economics. Uh, He's had tremendous experience on the diplomatic front, including solving a crisis with China back in 2016. Uh, He uh, wrote one of the most important books ever written on U.S.-China relationships and and how China has used uh, our desire for cheap products and uh, capital to take advantage of America and, and gain a leg up in the battle for economic and national security supremacy in the world. So General Robert Spaulding is going to join us. We're going to take a quick commercial break when we come back. It's a conversation you won't want to miss if you're concerned about China, if you're concerned about Russia, if you're concerned about the Middle East. We cover it all with one of the great strategic thinkers in all of the national security policy world. So we'll be back in a second with the interview with General Robert Spaulding. Okay, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, I have a very special guest today, General Robert S. Spaulding, retired Air Force General, uh, a very distinguished career, including the author of the highly praised national security strategy for the Trump administration, and now the author of a must-read book, Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite elite Slept. General Spaulding, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Your your book is sensational, and it's interesting, you know, uh, even before the pandemic started, as we were getting started at Just the News, we'd write a story about China and its security threats, and it would instantly rise to the top, which tells us that Americans are increasingly concerned about it. Tell us a little bit about what your book uh, pointed out about our decade of falling asleep. Well, you know, um, I, it started for me at the Pentagon when I was uh, advising the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and uh, you, I really started focusing on, uh, for him, the competition between the U.S. and China. And, you know, I had just come from a year in New York City at the Council on Foreign Relations where I'd met a lot of business uh, professionals. Right. And um, it was clear that 
uh, we were facing much more than um, kind of the standard military competition that we tend to focus on uh, in, in the Pentagon. It was more of an economic and a financial competition that saw our um, industrial base eroding. That's where it began with the understanding that, you know, we could no longer manufacture the things the Pentagon needed to protect the country. Uh, and it just started uh, getting worse from there. You know, as I peeled back the layers of the onion to reveal the uh, underlying rot, I kept thinking that eventually I'd get to the end of it. And, and so far, I still haven't. It, it is remarkable. And, and, you know, we saw that supply line threat, uh, the supply chain threat really come to focus with the pandemic when we realized we didn't have drugs and masks and other things. But really across the uh, America, we have a supply chain dependency on China that's probably significantly dangerous if we got into a more hostile po posture with them. What um, You have a background in economics as well. So I, I'd love to ask you when, you, uh, when you look at where we are now, how do we unravel this? What ideas are there to make America more reliant on itself and less reliant on China? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's three things that uh, three policy areas that really need focus in the United States right now. One is monetary policy, the other is industrial policy, and the, and the third and final one is trade policy. And they all work together to promote China's mercantilist model. So, number one, on monetary policy, they have a closed financial system. They have a non-convertible currency. They, the, the Bank of China sets a rate that they want to convert, uh, you know, dollars to RMB, RMB, and that allows them to have a steady flow of cash into the country. And they use that cash to provide easy access to credit for Chinese companies. In turn, that money is also used in industrial policy. It's used to get talent. It's used to get innovation. It's used to get technology. So some of it comes back in the form of buying U.S. startups. Some of it is used to power the PLA's theft of intellectual property uh, from U.S. companies. And, and part of it is just used to develop you, you know, new technology in China where you're bringing in uh, professors and experts from the United States to actually develop China's own te indigenous technology. And then the third, in trade policy, this is promoted by an uncompetitive atmosphere in, in China. In other words, there's non-tariff and tariff barriers. There is uh, then subsidization uh, abroad for their companies. So what they do is they take the technology that they've developed and acquired and stolen, and they turn around and they dominate markets globally. So this is how their system works. And if you look at that on the United States side, our monetary policy really promotes that. So we promote the flow of currency into China. Uh, an industrial policy, we don't have an industrial policy. And then right. on trade policy, we promote uh, the advantage that they get in, in terms of this imbalanced trade. So, you know, all three of our, you know, policies, areas of monetary, industrial, and trade are essentially architected so that they get complete advantage of our entire economic system. And this is why we have such a hard time. It, uh, it is remarkable when you hit, when you, you see the strategy that they have, because they're very patient. The Chinese have a very patient long-term strategy to supplant the United States as an economic and military superpower. And we, of course, in America have lacked sort of, until President Trump came in, a sort of national security and economic security policy uh, that was coherent. And the Chinese really made tremendous gains by, by all the reading I've done in, in the decade, uh, the last decade. 
part of that goes to the fact that there are people that were in the national security establishment, I think uh, Vice President Biden among them, who don't see China as a threat, who don't, who don't, who don't think that it's a, either a military, economic, long-term supremacy threat to America. Did that color our policy for too long a period of time? Oh, it's, yes. It's not just uh, the Obama administration. It's also both Bush administrations and the right. Clinton administration. I mean, really going back to the Nixon administration, a misunderstanding of the Chinese Communist Party. And so, yes, a lot of uh, political elites on both the right and the left essentially were co-opted by the Chinese Communist Party. And, and so we fed into this idea that um, openness, globalization, the internet would lead to the promotion of our economic system and democracy globally. In fact, what's happened is China just used what I told you, those three policy areas to essentially re-engineer the global economy so it benefits them. You know, it's a, it's a zero-sum game for them. And so this is the challenge that we face as a nation. You know, the last time we as a country did grand strategy was during the Cold War. Essentially, Eisenhower pulled in a number of experts into the White House to do a project called Project Solarium. And this was designed to understand, you know, not only the environment that we're in, the Soviet Union as an adversary, but also come up with a strategy that could be long term. And it was comprehensive. It included economics, it included finance, it included trade, and it included the military. Today, what we have, particularly since the end of the Cold War, when we think of strategy in the United States, we purely think of the military. And that is not the way to make comprehensive national grand strategy that actually sees the promotion of the economic power and might of the United States, the science and technological power of the United States, and then the, the promotion of democratic principles abroad that really lead to, you know, providing a buffer for our society. So this is, we, we just basically lost our way after the end of the Cold War, and no administration since, you know, has really thought of the world and, and where it's going, our place in it, and how we promote and preserve our republic. Now, you did a lot of that thinking at the beginning of the Trump administration when you put the NSS together. Uh, describe what culture, when, as you're putting together this national security strategy, what culture did you find within the security apparatus? Were people resistant, open to the idea of looking at the world in a different way and, and trying to identify threats that we may have overlooked in past, um, past administrations? Well, when we began this discussion about the national security strategy and, and what we needed, the benefit that, that I had to go into that situation was that I had spent the last three years intensely focused on grand strategy, how we, we turn this around. And so it, was, it led to a series of discussions and, um, and, and uh, a series of informal uh, seminars that I called Winning Without War. And it was really about talking about how the world had changed with globalization and the internet, how nation states were using political warfare, ideological warfare, psychological warfare, the internet, lawfare, all of these different tools to undermine the international order and to undermine America's strength within it. And so once people began to see uh, you know, these how these things were working together to erode the competitiveness of the United States, it was really easy to kind of get them on board and to get them thinking in a different sort of way. You know, it's no longer about, you know, you just have ships and planes and tanks uh, you know, right. and, and, and all of this military hardware, it's really about thinking about our place in the world and how we use the, 
the inherent strengths of an open society that's very innovative and has 40% of the investable capital in the world to really drive, you know, our national strength. And so that's how the you know, national security strategy really came together. And it was really in, over the course of about two to three months in the summer of 2017 where it really solidified. Really fascinating. And, you know, I remember back to when we were in the uh, campaign and, of course, a lot of people were mocking President Trump's uh, concerns about China, calling it xenophobic and uh, overblown. Uh, but over the last four years, as we've seen everything from the criminal cases involved where the um, you see China uh, infiltrating our research universities and, and having secret relationships that don't get disclosed, then we see the pandemic. Do you think the American public has become more aware of the of the impending threat that China uh, poses? And how do we rebuff the political attacks that are designed to scare people away from thinking that way? Well, you know, so I led a delegation to um, Taiwan earlier this year and to observe, to observe the elections there. And I had been there a year earlier and had talked to the president about this, you know, influence coming from the Chinese Communist Party. So it was apparent this time that they had developed some uh, civil society institutions that were focused on, you know, letting the population know that they were that they were, you know, in their social media platforms, they were coming coming under attack in their legacy media platforms. They were coming under in the influence of the Chinese Communist Party. So, right. so yes, I think the American population is aware because of the coronavirus. But now it's important that we be, as a society begin to inoculate ourselves against this by becoming more aware that nation states outside our borders are seeking to influence our population away from democratic principles, away from free trade, and more into a, an authoritarian system that really, you know, uh, controls them. So instead of the, them, uh, the government being responsible to the people, the people are responsible to the government. This is the kind of system that the Chinese Communist Party, the Russians and the Iranians and North Koreans, the Venezuelans and Cubans want to promote. And because of the economic might of the Chinese Communist Party, they're able to actually push this everywhere. It is remarkable. Now, as if you're sitting in the National Security Council today and, and uh, the president comes to you and says, what are five things we can do right now to begin to break this trend line of China gaining advantage over us? Where would you start? What are the five most tangible things we could do in the next two years to disrupt this uh, pattern of China getting the upper hand with us? So, uh, First of all, I would build a nationwide secure industrial Internet for the United States. That's really about protecting America's information, its data, which is its most precious resource, and, and allowing for the rise of what's called Industry 4.0, so advanced manufacturing, logistics, uh, transportation, you know, self-driving cars. All of these are waiting for this industrial uh, 5G secure encrypted internet that is not currently being built. Number two, make tariffs permanent. Make them permanent vis-a-vis -vis China and anybody, any nation that works with China. Number three, stop investing our retirement funds in Chinese companies, Chinese stocks, and Chinese bonds. Number four, stop allowing U.S. corporations to invest in manufacturing China. Actually bring that back. And number five, take you know, a portion of the defense budget and start investing in science and technology research, STEM education, 
you know, influencing man, the, the movement of manufacturing and infrastructure. So I think if you do those five things, you really have a recipe of rebuilding the economic and science and technological uh, dominance of the United States. Well, Industry 4.0 sounds so exciting, and yet there's been no real movement to create that sort of secure internet. And I, I know a lot of people I've talked to, uh, Michael Pillsbury, uh, Newt Gingrich, lots of people have been talking about that being a blind spot in Silicon Valley and, and even in the United States policymakers' uh, vantage points. How do we get that on the radar? Is there a way to get that on the radar so that it, it becomes a reality someday? Well, what I'm trying to promote is this idea of a, a national autonomy corridor. Uh, this was in the uh, study that I did on 5G at the White House. It's really about building right. an industrial Internet across the United States, you know, from East Coast to West Coast, and then maybe three corridors uh, from North to South. So it really spurs the production of 5G equipment that gets the per unit cost down because we're in production flow. Once we're in production flow, it makes it really easy and inexpensive to, blow, to deploy it nationwide. Now, the telecom, the, you know, the AT&Ts and Verizons of the world aren't building this industrial Internet. They're building, you know, if they are installing 5G, it's really only about Facebook and Netflix. It's not about, you know, bringing you the manufacturing of the future. So it's right. really a different sort of a, a sort of a network that needs to be built. Now, the opportunity for America, I mean, investors sometimes uh, get scared when they hear these autonomy questions because they, they like cheap labor in China. They like uh, trade with China. They like access to the Chinese market. But the strategy you lay out actually has a tremendous upside to uh, the manufacturing uh, base and jobs in America, right? This has got a pro-American economic opportunity if executed properly. Absolutely. And, it, and it's really not that difficult um, when you think about it. Um, you know, we uh, there's this narrative that the United States uh, is no has lost a lead in telecommunications uh, technology. What I found when I was at the White House is that we still have the lead. It's just not in the telecom industry. It's actually moved to the defense industry. So the defense primes get a lot of money from the government to do research and develop with regard to telecommunications and computing, except that technology gets put in either on the shelf after it's been proven or it gets deployed in, you know, one-off um, weapon systems uh, in, in, you know, advanced, uh, you know, aircraft, for instance, like the F-35 or uh, in the Navy in the Aegis Cruiser. These aren't being brought to market like they were during uh, the Cold War. So it's really about looking for that technological competitiveness in a different place. And what you'll find is we have more advanced technology than Huawei. It's just not in AT&T. It, you're going to find it in, in, a, in a Raytheon or, or, or a Lockheed Martin. You're not going to find it uh, in the commercial sector. Fascinating. Yeah, you're, you're right, because when you read, you don't hear about those advances at the Defense Department at all. Um, I could talk to you about China all day because it's such a fascinating, it is the global uh, battle of the future for America. But I want to take you to another venue where you have a lot of experience because you, you ran um, air and ground operations in both Libya and Iraq. And I want to go for a second, first to Libya. Uh, yesterday, we had a story on Just the News that the Russian uh, military has dropped some uh, air capacity into Libya. What do you think their intentions are in Libya? And uh, what mistakes have we made in that policy over the last decade? 
Well, I think, you know, for them, it's just really about sowing division and ensuring that they get a, um, you know, that they, whatever side is victorious within Libya becomes allied with uh, Russia. So, of course, what they don't want is Libyan oil to be competing with Russian oil. So it's really about keeping, you know, and, you know, either having access to that Libyan oil or preventing that Libyan oil for, from competing with Russian oil in the market. It's uh, it is fascinating, and you know Joe Biden was one of the few people that were was critical of the the rest of the Obama administration's move there. But I think as people look back at his concerns as he's articulated them, he and others who looked at what the destabilization in in twenty eleven, um, a lot of those fears have come have come to pass. Uh, Iraq's another place that um, I know President Trump would love to get our troops home, and there's a lot of pressure to bring them home, particularly with the new prime minister who seems to have a good start to building a coalition there. Uh, talk a little bit about what America should do with its military presence in Iraq, um, given all the investment we've made there over two decades. Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, in terms of our military presence in the Middle East, I think what we should be doing is trying to minimize the amount of you know resources that we're expending in that area. You know, we can uh, help uh, both uh, the Saudis and the Israelis help counterbalance what the Iranians are doing uh, within Iraq. You know, to the extent that we are involved, we ought to be much more involved in term in, in economically in terms of working with them to bring that oil to market. And I think more importantly, where we can be focused as a nation when you're thinking about energy production is here in the United States. We've we've generated this tremendous capability and capacity here in the United States for generating energy. And then we've, we've uh, allowed the Russians and Saudis working together during the coronavirus uh, outbreak to really destroy the market uh, here for the you know, U.S. oil. And so we're going to have to you know, protect that and rebuild that because ultimately, if we can generate our own energy, then we're not going to have to be as involved in, in the Middle East. And it really becomes then about balancing between Saudi Arabia, Israel, and, and Iran, because I think if we can do that, uh, that gives us time to essentially have a, a regime change eventually in Iran that, that allows for this less uh, confrontational nature. And, and do you feel that regime change is likely to occur? And what's the timetable in Iran? I mean, I know coronavirus hit them hard. The economic sanctions have really crippled them. Are we years away, decades away from a regime change there? Well, you know, because of their partnership with the Chinese and the Russians, it really yeah. makes it difficult for us to predict that. You know, the, what what the Chinese have, uh, Communist Party has become so adept at is adopting the technologies and business models of Silicon Valley to promote uh, their authoritarian, you know, IT-based totalitarian system. And so they're deploying that, you know, uh, in places like Iran and, and Russia. They're sharing that technology and that know-how. And so... It is very difficult, and, and you know one of the things that that prevents us from actually breaking through that is that we uh, essentially in 1999 got rid of the U.S. Information Agency, which is really an organization right. designed to promote uh, public diplomacy, you know, American principles and American values. And so, uh, Radio Free Asia, Radio Free Europe, Voice of America have all been infiltrated and slowly been, you know, not promoting. <laughs> American principles and broad. In fact, when I was in the White House and we were having riots in in Iran, you know, our uh, you know Voice of America and Radio Free Asia were were essentially retweeting um, the the Tehran uh, regime's talking points. So 
it's, it's, yeah. it's gotten so bad and, and they're conflicted because they think that, you know, meeting journalistic standards means they have to give, you know, equal weight to what these totalitarian regimes say. That's not their job. They're not CNN. They're essentially an arm of the U.S. of U.S. public diplomacy, and they're supposed to be presenting the U.S. side, not the side of, you know, essentially a murderous regime. Yeah, no, we've, we've seen it with China recently, where they were taking the, the communist China's uh, talking points on coronavirus and other things. Uh, we, I think one of their de- tweets got deleted afterwards because it was so embarrassing. But um, that's a really great point that, that we've lost our, our communication capabilities into these hostile regions because of uh, the change that has occurred at those institutions. Back to Iraq, because I'm curious, do you think the president will achieve pulling our troops out of Iraq this year? Do you think he'll get it done before the election? You know, I, I, I'd like to see that he that he would. You know, the problem we have in D.C. is still there, you know, not at the National Security Council, I can tell you, because I know a lot of the people that work there. But certainly outside of that, you still have uh, this sense that national security is really about troops on the ground. And there's not an understanding of kind of more of what I talked about, the grand strategy. Now, how do we use you know, our newfound energy independence, how do we use, you know, manufacturing dominance and and science and technology dominance to really drive the agenda and and promote growth, not just in the United States, but also in other democratic countries? And how do we sideline those nations that are more authoritarian and and make it more difficult for them to be connected to that, um, to that system and take advantage of it? And so these are the things that you have to really um, have a more of a broad view of the world and understand business, understand industry, understand, you know, science and technology and really bring a kind of a balanced um, approach to how we, how we, you know, use all the benefits of living in a free society to really promote our, our principles and values abroad, because it really allows us to have more of a buffer away. You know, we used to think of this idea of two big oceans, two friendly borders as, you know, insulating the United States uh, from from conflict or confrontation. And of course, we've seen with globalization and the internet, the ability for it to come right into our own living rooms, either through social media influence, or like we saw uh, with the, the attacks in 9-11, you know, using the, the, the globalized world to really, you know, weaponize it. And so these are the things that we have to think differently about how uh, national security works and not be so focused on going and starting these conflicts abroad because they don't really contribute to our ultimate national power. The, there's a lot of excitement uh, when I talk to people in the State Department, uh, Defense Department in White House about uh, Mustafa al-Kadimi, the new prime minister. He had a good relationship with Americans as the intelligence chief. What are we going to do? There's going to be bilateral talks in June. What do we do to prop him up, make sure that Iran doesn't meddle? even as we start the process of getting our last troops out of the um, out of the region? Well, I mean, I, that's going to be very difficult because, uh, you know, they're right there. And so um, it's really about um, uh, putting pressure on the Iranian regime via other ways. Remember, I talked about, you know, public diplomacy. You know, we haven't really beamed in a lot of, uh, you know, uh, news to let the, let the population know that there are other things uh, out there. And so it's really about using you know, our means to deliver, you know, the truth uh, into Iran that might might help, you know, have that regime be more focused on their own people than they are about, you know, outside their borders. Uh, that's a great, that's a great point. 
Well, General, I could talk to you all day. Your strategic thinking is so refreshing in an era where we live in Twitter sound bites. But uh, folks, if you haven't gotten this book, you must get it. It's a must read. Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. It is the ultimate uh, Bible of understanding how America got into the position it did with China and how we can get ourselves out of it. General, I can't thank you for spending so much time sharing your thoughts today. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. All right. So you have a good day, Uh, folks. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. uh, But first, a quick commercial break. Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer, a beach bum summer, or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door, in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. All right, folks, what an interview. A very thoughtful, lot of things to chew on from General Spaulding. And I hope you enjoyed it today. That's why we did this special edition. It's so rare to gain access to somebody who was at the forefront of developing the national security policies now being followed by our president, President Trump. And I hope uh, it was worth your time and uh, being able to dive into this conversation and learn more. If you get a chance, uh, we've just opened up a new store. Uh, it's called JTNShop.com. That's JTNShop.com. All sorts of great gadgets and everything you buy. Part of the proceeds goes to support John Solomon Reports, the podcast, and the Just the News website, all the great reporting we're doing there. We hope you go check it out. There's some early gift ideas for dad for Father's Day. So, uh, And I'm a gadget nut. There's some really fun gadgets on the site as well. Uh, my favorite is the phone cleaner. Uh, my phone is left everywhere as I travel every day, and I know it's picking up germs everywhere I go. And I just snap it into this little box at night, press the button, and a sterilizing light uh, takes all the germs off my phone so I can use it again tomorrow feeling that it's clean and disinfected. There's uh, earbuds for your your phones uh, uh, to go wireless with your phones when you're talking with someone. Uh, there's uh, My other favorite uh, is a little battery pack that you carry in the back of your car. And if your battery ever runs out or you come across someone whose battery died on the road, you don't even need jumper cables. You just take this little battery with its two cables and you can charge a car in seconds without having to connect two cars together, which always scared me when I was uh, doing it as a young man. So all of those are on the store. So jtnshop.com, our new Just the News store, a great way to pick up some fun items and support the sort of journalism we do here at Just the News and John Solomon Reports. All right, we'll be back tomorrow. In the House is Congressman Matt Gates, the Republican from Florida. That's always a colorful conversation. I'm sure we're going to be talking about Russia and, and climate change and all the things that are on Matt Gates' uh, uh, policy plate each day. So please come back and tune in tomorrow and join us. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed today with General Robert Spaulding, a really enlightening conversation for me. We'll be back tomorrow. Have a good day.